From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show that covers the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The deadline to get in on the next small business set aside from the General Services Administration is coming in two days. Laura Stanton, the new leader of GSA's IT category, says the goal on the quick turnaround for vendors is to make awards on the STARS 3 contract, quote, as soon as possible. FCW reports the ceiling on the new contract is $50 billion. The Advisory Committee on Data for Evidence Building will get its work underway soon. The designated federal official for the committee, Lucas Hitt of the Bureau of Economic Analysis, says the committee will move quickly on pilot projects to improve how agencies access, link, and protect data. FedScoop reports the committee will stream its meetings live virtually. A 63-day strike at a Navy shipyard is over tonight after members of Machinists Local S6 at Bath Ironworks in Maine voted to accept a three-year contract Sunday. The 4,300 workers the union represents went back to work today. The shipyard was already more than six months behind schedule on Navy destroyers when the strike began June 22nd. The acting secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, and two other top DHS officials should be on the way out, according to Democratic leaders in Congress. New opinion from the Government Accountability Office finds their appointments were illegal. GAO says the appointments in question violated the Federal Vacancy Reform Act and the Homeland Security Act. Ricardo Pitts-Wiley is a partner at the Federal Practice Group. Tom Spulak is partner at King & Spalding, LLC. Gentlemen, thanks very much for joining me. Ricardo, you first. What's your takeaway from the opinion rendered by the Government Accountability Office? I think it was a very measured decision. Um, you know, GAO does not have the uh, enforcement capability uh, to follow through on uh, the consequences of these uh, illegal appointments. Um, but GAO's decision will uh, certainly be utilized by uh, several plaintiffs right now that are uh, bringing decision, or excuse me, bringing cases against the Department of Homeland Security. So this will certainly help. Tom, what was your takeaway from the opinion, the language GAO used, the citations they made, anything like that? I think from a legal perspective, the GAO opinion really stands on its own. Um, the GAO has the authority to evaluate appointments that were made under the uh, Vacancies Act. You know, it's important, I think, to know that uh, the GAO is, is nonpartisan and, uh, you know, generally does not be criti uh, gets criticized for, for its positions. Um, I think they laid out the, the, the opinion well. I think it's clear that the DHS made a mistake. Uh, Secretary uh, Nielsen you know, had the authority to change the order of succession. She had done that back in February of 2019, did it again the day before she resigned. And I would say that due to an unfortunate error, she did not provide for McAleenan to succeed her. Uh, she could have done that, and that is DHS's uh, response. They said, well, by by doing that, by swearing him in, she, for all intents and purposes, you might say, or a de facto basis, amended her order um, of, of back in February 2019, laying out the order of succession. But she didn't do that. Um, there's no doubt that she had the authority. She didn't. They, they erred. 
and I think now they're they're paying the consequences. Um, but as our other guest said, you know, this is not self-executing. It's not as though this report itself can result in any changes. Congress can act, but probably more likely what will happen is um, plaintiffs, uh, impacted plaintiffs of, of uh, actions taken uh, by the improperly appointed officials uh, will go to court and try to have those uh, actions set aside. And in doing so, then a court will rule on whether the appointments were proper or not. Ricardo, two terms that Tom used there that I think are important, the fact that this was, um, uh, the DHS is arguing for all intents and purposes, this was what it was. What does one do the next time that there's a situation like this, whether it's DHS or another agency, to not get into this situation in the first place? What does one do to make sure that one gets it right next time? Uh, well, you know, every federal government agency has to uh, follow their own order of secession plan. Um, it's important to note here that, you know, the, the 1998 Federal Vacancies Reform Act was designed to provide the exclusive vehicle for temporarily filling vacant advice and consent positions and to try and prevent, you know, the undue delay uh, in a president submitting nominees for the Senate uh, to confirm him or her. Um, the Homeland Security Act actually carved out an, an exception to this uh, particular rule. So the Homeland, uh, you know, Homeland Security has the ability to change their own order of secession. Uh, and you know, the other speaker is absolutely correct. Nielsen made a mistake in uh, not properly revising the order of secession before she resigned. But you know, I really think there's a there's a bigger problem here that's afoot for agencies, which is. The Senate is supposed to provide, you know, checks and balance, uh, you know, on our on our executive functions here. And, you know, when you have federal government agencies that are trying to avoid those checks and balances, it really puts the public, I think, uh, you know, in danger of there being, um, you know, extremist views or, or, or views that are outside of the mainstream. Um, that are, you know, impacting uh, all of us in terms of our, our security. Um, so in terms of what, you know, an agency should do next time is, is follow the rules. Tom, we have about a minute left. Is it as simple as that? Is it as simple as following the letter of the law rather than it sounds like DHS thought it was fulfilling the spirit of the law and it turns out that it wasn't fulfilling the letter? Is it as simple as just doing exactly to the letter as the law says, do you think? Well, I do. I mean, we are a nation of laws, and these are not statutes that are hard to follow. And in fact, up until that last day, uh, Secretary Nielsen had, in fact, been been following those. Um, so I think agencies, you know, you, you know, obviously should pay attention to the statutes that relate to them. Um, and I also think that um, you know sometimes it's the agencies, and sometimes it's the push from the administration. Um, who the administration would like to see leading an agency or department, and that can certainly complicate matters. Tom and Ricardo, thanks very much for your insight. I appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Up next, legacy IT systems making a big impact at the Department of Homeland Security. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the scope of the problem and what it'll take to get the agency back on track.
The Human Resources IT system for hiring, training, and evaluation at the Department of Homeland Security is now 17 years old. It's one of the legacy systems the agency's inspector general says hinders the agency's mission. John Zangardi is president at Red Horse Corporation. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Um, I, I, I did a quick check before you came on the air, and I read that the Department of Homeland Security was stood up December 25th, 2002. I'm no math expert, but it sounds like the IT system that I referred to is pretty much as old as the department. Is that the issue here, the age of these legacy systems, or is there something else at play? Look, at Francis, thank you for having me here. It's been an awful long time since uh, we've met and talked. Um, so is it an issue? So my, my view on legacy is uh, anything that old is probably a problem. Uh, but I'd like to comment a little bit about the OIG report, Office of the Inspector General. I'm a firm believer that the OIG is absolutely important and critical, you know, as a taxpayer to helping people understand where government is doing well and falling short. But, but I'd like to add a little color to the report because I think it's important to put it in context. And in the report, they talk about uh, movement to the cloud and data center consolidation. And one of the things that, that caught my attention in the report, uh, and because context is important, is the move out of uh, various zones A and B at the Stennis data center. The context there is against mission and the need on the border to keep a particular application or system running continuously. As you might recall, as we were moving out of A and B zones at Stennis, there was a surge on the border. In fact, the surge on the border was going on for a long time. We had a customer who was going to come in and take those spaces. Uh, we needed to move out, but we needed to find a way to move all the systems out. In the process of moving, we found one system that dated back to 2017 in terms of not having patches. And the hardware it was running on was seven plus years old. And the reason it was like that was because of mission. They felt they could never turn off the system because of a fear that they would not be able to support the surge at the border. We had to deal with that. And as you can imagine, that was an all-hands effort to get that to a point where we could pick it up, modernize it, and move it out to the cloud. It was very successful. But along the way, you run into a lot of things that make that challenging. If the surge on the border is continuing and the amount of time that the system will be down because of its implementation and testing, for example, started at 32 hours, we had to find a way to get that down to a minimal amount of time and executing in the evenings. We were able to get it down to four hours. My point is when you start looking at these systems and you start digging into each one of them, there's a lot of eaches. And each of those eaches sometimes require an all hands on deck kind of approach that requires you to take a lot of talent to that particular problem. There's no excuse for the system not having been patched or updated in such a long time. But the thing is, when we found it, we went after it. But it does take time away from other projects. That kind of points to the criticality of your original question. We need to make sure across government, across the federal government, that legacy systems are being modernized and updated. The other two systems that the IG points to are the um, financial management system and a FEMA grant management system. Who owns those systems? Are those in the office of the CIO, John? Or are you working in collaboration with other CXOs? Were you, when you were the CIO there, working in collaboration with other CXOs but not having autonomy over those systems to make final decisions? 
Right. So none of those systems were under the operational or execution control of the office of the uh, chief information officer. The HR system is under Chico. The uh, financial system is under the CFO. And uh, the FEMA grant system is under FEMA. Now, let me point out, particularly in the case of the HR system and the financial system, we in the CIO office worked very closely with Stacy Marka, who was the acting CFO at the time, and Angie Bailey, who was or is still the uh, Chico for DHS. In both cases, we sat in the CIO on the governance board, and we made sure we had the right executives there. In fact, for the governance board for the financial management system, myself and my deputy attended almost all of the meetings. My director for IT operations was there to support it. CISO was there to support it. We put the manpower on it. And I can assure you that if I walked into Angie or Stacy's office and said, hey, we have a problem, they would have taken appropriate action. But to your point, we didn't own the systems. The systems belonged to someone else. We contributed technically and from a governance point of view. I will say on the financial system, the decision in 2017 to take the system away, to stop utilizing another department's financial management solution was the right one. When DHS decided to go on its own, I think the right decision was made. And as I was leaving DHS last November, uh, they were tracking pretty well to rolling out what they needed to roll out with TSA and Coast Guard. So I think they've made some progress over the last two, two plus years. We have about a minute left, John. My goal here is not to suggest to Angie Bailey or Karen Evans or Troy Edgar what they should do with these systems, but to inform people who are watching from the outside looking in. What do you expect to see happen next? Uh, I think you'll see the financial system roll out successfully, and I think it'll, it'll have to be rolled out across DHS. There are risk items that they'll need to evaluate. Uh, Karen Evans uh, is a seasoned IT professional, and I am sure she'll make it happen. Uh, real quickly, though, before we get off, I'd like to adjust the recommendations at the end of the OIG report and suggest while they're good, the right recommendations would be for them to start thinking about consolidating the network and SOX in DHS. Uh, there's 16 SOC security operations centers in the department and consolidating them down and driving to a single network could drive savings after an investment. They need to continue driving changes to how they hire IT and cyber people. Salaries for those people lag industry. And while I was there, we lost people to industry and you can't argue with someone needing or wanting to go out and make more money. So those two important recommendations right there and how I think DHS could go about improving uh, the IT posture of the organization. John, those are great observations. Karen Evans addressed all of them when she was on the program a couple of weeks ago, and you can see that conversation at govmatters.tv. John, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you back. Francis, take care. Pleasure seeing you again. Up next, the clock is ticking for CARES Act payments for defense contractors. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the industrial base could look like when time runs out. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. All four senators from Maryland and Virginia have asked the Senate to extend CARES Act benefits for defense contractors until the end of the calendar year. If it doesn't, Section 3610 of the CARES Act will expire at the end of September. 
Amy Benson is Vice President of Government Affairs at SAIC and writing about this extension in FCW. Amy, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You write in this piece, this failure to extend these benefits leaves many company and co companies and contractors in uncertain territory and having to consider new scenarios for their workforces moving forward. What's your sense of what those new scenarios for their workforces look like? Thank you, Francis. I appreciate your having me here today. It, it, you know, unfortunately, the, the point of Section 3610 was to make sure that the workforce was kept whole, to make sure that contractors went had paychecks uh, throughout the pandemic. When the federal facilities shut down and they can't get to their workplace, uh, you know, they, they still need to provide for their families and pay their mortgages. 3610 has been instrumental throughout the pandemic in allowing us to make sure that our employees had paychecks throughout. Without 3610, when it expires September 30th, a lot of companies will be in the situation of having to make some hard decisions and think about alternative scenarios. For those whose employees are back to work, they may be able to continue operating, but if COVID continues into the fall and winter and facilities need to shut down, no company can afford to keep their employees sitting on the bench for an, an, for an, an amount of time yet to be determined. Uh, so with a tight workforce, uh, with a, a lot of competition for highly skilled employees out there, I'm scared that employees may decide to take a second look at whether they want to have, whether government service is the right answer for them when they can go to work for a commercial company that allows them to telework and allows them to keep providing for their families. Are the commercial companies that may potentially poach these employees though in any better shape than the government contractors are given what's happening in the overall economy, Amy? Well, I, you know, I think many of them are because they're able to telework for a lot of their missions. For the government mission in particular, if you think about the classified space, uh, there, it's not conducive to social distancing, yet our employees are supposed to go and show up for work and then be off the next week. They're expected to do shift work. Um, it, in that case, those, um, those employees may not want to take the chance of waiting to see if their paycheck's going to come through or not. They may not want to take the chance of having 50% of their pay or working the strange hours when they can work from home for a commercial company. We don't want to see that. Our employees are our biggest asset and we'd like to hold on to them and maintain them. I'm particularly worried about the small businesses in these scenarios. So when you use the word employees, you kind of anticipate my next question, which is, is this something that you're worried about at the prime level, at the SAIC type level, even with a company at, with a balance sheet like uh, a prime has, or is this something you're more worried about in the supply chain, further down the chain, in the sub chain? Both. I'm particularly worried about the small businesses who can't handle a couple of weeks off. And SAIC can probably bridge the gap a little bit easier for our employees than some of the smaller companies. You know, I'm worried about the, the small shops with a couple of, you know, jewel employees for the federal government that may decide they just want to hang it up or they can't afford to sit around waiting. Uh, in that case, that's going to be a huge loss to the government mission. That's a lot of retraining. You have to go through clearance processes again and rehiring of new employees. 
in the long run, that ends up being a lot more expensive to not only the company, but also to the federal government and the taxpayer. A lot of the discussion, Amy, around 3610 has revolved around finances and sustainability. You make a point about 3610 in this piece in FCW that I hadn't heard before. You write, without an extension, continuity of government operations through the COVID-19 crisis will be threatened. How so? Well, again, if you lose those critical employees, those are folks that the government is relying on to keep the government mission going. I mean, the, the federal contractor is a prime partner for the federal government to keep things going. If we lose this, these very, again, skilled, highly cleared individuals, uh, that's that's a, puts the government mission in jeopardy. We have less than a minute left, Amy. What will you watch other than funding, uh, than an extension on 3610? Is there anything else that would solve the, or, or remedy the situation a little bit? Or is it really an either or? You know, the funding is important in this. It really is, especially for DOD and NASA who have funding requests into the Congress currently and being considered in the Senate Heals Act. Um, however, the extension itself of the authorization, that impacts more than just DOD and NASA. That impacts all agencies. It utilizes existing appropriations. Uh, so whether it be on a the next COVID relief package or on a continuing resolution, uh, it's just vital that we get the authorization through. Otherwise, we'll be looking at a lot of requests for equitable adjustment um, and other such contracting mechanisms that takes away from the workforce's ability to do the emergency contracting they need to do currently. Amy Benson, thanks very much for coming on. Thank you for having me, Francis. Really appreciate the opportunity. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.